I really wish I was an audio engineer, or had an audio engineer, because I feel like I feel like I'm making a bunch of mistakes and don't know it. <laughs> but as long as it's good enough, I guess. Yeah, I think there's a lot of satisfying we all have to do, and we're trying to do something new. So yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's great. Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is Season 1, Episode 12, Humility. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. Well, we've come to the last episode of this season. And while I won't say that I've saved the best for last, because, I mean, how do you pick a favorite child, let alone a favorite conversation with all of these wonderful people? This episode today is especially, well, everything. Let me explain what I mean. As you've been listening this season, you might have found yourself recognizing some areas needing self-improvement. Maybe the episode with Melissa Seavey made you want to develop more resilience, or the episode with Tyler Schultz inspired you to have more courage. Personally, I've been reflecting on the conversations with David Williams about hope and Andrew Maxfield about creativity. So with that in mind, or with whatever attribute you're hoping to improve, this episode may be just the thing. To show you what I mean, I want you to try the following. Imagine sitting down with the person closest to you and asking just one question. And after you've asked this question, you're not allowed to talk other than to get clarification. Keep a notepad handy because you're probably gonna need it. Are you ready for the question? Here it is. Ask the person closest to you, how can I improve? I've done this before with my wife, and I can tell you that it was both enlightening and, no surprise, excruciating. My instinct was to resist, rationalize, and otherwise find a way to make myself feel better rather than to really listen to what she had to say. There are a lot of reasons that such an exercise is so hard for us. But the antidote to this isn't just to avoid asking. Even if we don't want to know, the world has a way of showing us our faults. As James Barry, who created Peter Pan, once said, life is a long lesson in humility. And there's the antidote. It's humility, a typically misunderstood virtue. To get humility right, we're going to turn to one of the world's leading researchers in humility, my friend Brad Owens, who teaches with me here at Brigham Young University. His work on leadership humility has been cited thousands of times by other scholars. He and his collaborators found a way to define and measure humility in a way that is both insightful and incredibly useful. As I like to do, I want to begin with how Professor Owens found his way into studying humility. You know, I I have gotten this question quite a bit, and I I wish there was a really salient reason, like my superlative in the yearbook in high school was most arrogant or something, and like how the (laughs) irony was... (laughs) I needed to study this to figure figure this out, but I I do know that there have been moments when I have noticed individuals that I thought were very interesting and had experienced a lot, and even in some cases were very successful, but they also had this humility about them, and it was disarming in a way, and I sensed that there was kind of a level of wholeness to them 
And I've just always admired those individuals and felt uh, like they made an impression on me. And so I kind of wanted to figure that out. Like, why are these individuals have this impact, at least on me personally, and seem to have such a positive impact on others? I would wager that there's someone in your life that comes to mind right now. Someone whose accomplishments you admire, but whose humility makes them truly special. Maybe it's a parent, or a friend, or a boss. Keep them in mind throughout this interview, because it will help you think more deeply about Brad's research. I think that's, that may be part of it, where my interest came from. And certainly, I feel like I, I have had moments in, in the past where I, I felt like I didn't behave in a way that reflected humility, and I've always regretted those moments. And so maybe there's kind of a self-journey narrative in here as well, like figuring out why did I resort to that kind of mode of behavior that that, uh, seemed in retrospect to be kind of arrogant and and try and kind of figure out what drives us to behave uh, humbly. In my doctoral program, I also read uh, positive psychology articles, and, and they talked about how humility is lagged behind the other character strengths and virtues that have been studied. And in part, it's because measurement has been such an issue. Yeah, let's talk about that idea of measurement. That was actually the next question I have in my list, because it seems like that would be a really hard thing to do. How did you come to discover a way to measure humility effectively and reliably? Yeah, so the psychologists that I was reading about who were kind of positive psychology pioneers uh, talking about their efforts to study humility and attempts to use a self-report measure, it was difficult to interpret someone who rates themselves highly on humility. Self-report humility from the get-go it was a problem just due to the nature of the construct of humility. As someone who rates themselves as exceptionally humble, is that a sign that they are not humble at all? Or are there some who are very self-aware and truly authentically humble and they know it, and then others that think they are? Since I'm hoping to study humility in leadership as a doctoral student, I thought since leadership is influence after all, then it's the perception of humility that really matters. And so developing a behavioral-based measure of humility that other people can observe in others became the strategy. And the initial studies had both self-report and other report measures. And I used both in trying to predict important outcomes and found that self-report humility predicts nothing. I guess it shouldn't surprise us that asking people how humble they are doesn't really tell us much. But it's really interesting that asking other people to rate our humility does work. And the reason it works is because humility isn't just an internal attitude about ourselves. It's an outward set of behaviors that people can observe. In fact, we're always observing this kind of thing in others, and we have a complicated relationship with it. On the one hand, we really value people that express high levels of confidence, like the mechanic who assures us that they know how to fix the weird noise our car is making. But we also like humility, especially from successful people. Think of the whole idea of an Oscar speech. The person holding that statuette isn't there to talk about how great they are. If they did, it would be a disaster. When and in what situations do we actually prefer people being humble? 
it seems like culturally, especially here in the United States, but with Western cultures generally, we have a preference for bravado, right? The people that express high degrees of confidence. But we also seem to want people to be humble. At the same time, that feels like a weird tension. Mm. What do you think explains that? And how do we make sense of that? Yeah, I think that that is a great question, Aaron. I, I think with regard to leadership, there's some scholars who have examine what they call implicit theories of leadership, that we all have this idea of what makes a good leader inside of us is kind of an implicit theory. And they're actually not simplistic. They're often pretty complex. And maybe, I don't know, bravado is the word that I would necessarily use, but I have read some social science that said our initial evaluations of people before anything else, kind of these global evaluations are is this person competent and is this person warm? Jumping back in here with a comment, I think it's fascinating that we first look for competence and warmth. Often I find myself worried a lot more about appearing competent when I meet new people. Will they think I deserve their attention? When I worry too much about how I appear, sadly, that's when warmth goes out the window. A good piece of advice I try to use more and more is to spend my time with a new person mostly asking questions about them. It helps me remember the importance of being warm. And funny enough, I've found that people are willing to assume that I'm competent if I'm showing genuine interest in them. And so those are the two things that people immediately try to assess about kind of a, a new person that you're interacting with. And usually warmth is actually desired first. But then they also want to know whether or not this person can add value, whether their perspective has credibility. And so it seems like there's just a fundamental way that we have of evaluating people. So does that ever come to mind as you're meeting somebody new? Do you ever find yourself thinking deliberately, okay, how do I convey competence and warmth in this interaction? (laughs) I think I just default, how do I not convey awkwardness is kind of the way I think about (laughs) new interactions. And I'm not always very successful about avoiding that. You're going to see throughout the interview just how humble Brad is. Truth be told, I suspect that he's always been this way. Now for us to get humility right, we need to understand where we have it wrong. Humility is a woefully misunderstood attribute. I asked Brad to explain what the most common misconceptions are. I think one of the biggest ones is that they think humility means this an underestimation of one's abilities and and of one's value, or it reflects this sense of lowliness. And it's true that there are dictionary definitions that that reflect that idea about humility. But a scholar that I really like, her name is Janine Grenberg. And she wrote a book called Kant and the Ethics of Humility. And in it, she talks about the dividing line or the boundary between virtuous humility and weakness-based humility. Mm. And basically, her main point is that in order for someone to have true, you know, strengths-based, constructive humility, it has to be founded on a a correct um, or accurate sense of one's worth, dignity, value. And it can't, it can't be a sense of self that is either artificially inflated or compressed. I think the biggest misconception of humility is 
people wonder whether or not it could possibly have any utility or practical value because they're assuming humility just means to be soft-spoken and, and kind of spineless and only too quick to yield to the, the wishes of others. I think my favorite part of Brad's research is the way it redeems the value of humility. It's more than just a kind of social pillow, softening our hard edges. The current wave of humility research shows that it has measurable benefits, including at work. Humble leaders, for example, usually get better outcomes. It works this way because humility helps leaders to recognize their weaknesses in a way that becomes empowering. As Brad started looking into the effect of humble leaders, this was one of the early key insights. The one that surprised me the most was when we were interviewing leaders of mortgage banks in Seattle right after the housing crisis and them talking about this sense of liberation that occurred when they realized that they didn't have to be all things to all people, that instead they could show their humility, show humanness and acknowledge when they didn't know things. And in that kind of tumultuous time in their industry, that was especially useful for the leaders who already had established their leadership based on a measure of humility versus those that had tried to be kind of omniscient in a way or have this impervious kind of perfect persona as a leader. Those were the individuals that struggled in crisis more than those who already had opened up their, their own process of development, had legitimized growing, it legitimized making mistakes once in a while, and, and it legitimized uncertainty. Humility works in leadership because we like following humble leaders, but there's more to it than that. According to Brad's research, humility in leaders also relieves a heavy burden on the entire organization. Leaders who show humility produce a lot of psychological benefits to their followers. One of them is, is relief from evaluation apprehension rather than appearing competent to the boss and never admitting a mistake because that's what they think the boss wants. The boss who is willing to show humility instead kind of validates the, the employee's development. And so this in turn leads to higher productivity. They're more likely to stay. They're just happier. They're more engaged, more satisfied more creative. We have many more documented workplace benefits of humility, but there's also these interpersonal ones. Those who embrace humility just seem to have this sense of, of wholeness about them and liberation from things that are taxing with regard to trying to maintain an inflated persona. The list of benefits that come from humble leaders goes on and on. For example, humble leaders can last longer Employees work better in a range of ways. It seems like the case for humility is all upside. So are there any trade-offs? Are there any ways that humility imposes a cost? In the short run, it seems, and we have research that shows that narcissists in the short run seem much more impressive than people who are humble. And narcissists mm -hmm. tend to be selected for leadership. Their ideas are taken more seriously. By the way, here he's not talking about the extreme kind of narcissism that comes with a mental illness, but rather just general arrogance. In the short term, those individuals tend to have some advantages. 
And there may even be some organizational context where that's the kind of person that is promoted and, and wanted. At least that's what they think they want. But often what happens is over time, the true colors come out. Individuals who initially felt great confidence in the narcissistic person doesn't feel like they can trust them all that much and, and senses that they're not uh, motivated out of the interests of the group to benefit the group as a whole. So long-term, we have some anecdotal and, and I think some empirical evidence that shows that humility leads to some advantages over the narcissist. It tends to accrue over time. They tend to build trust with others because they deliver on what they promise. They own and learn from their mistakes. And thus their rate of development and the value they add to an organization just grows faster over time. This insight, by the way, was part of a very cool study using real historical sales data in the car industry where teams had to make strategic decisions. The study pitted these teams against each other. Dr. Owens and his co-authors measured the perceived humility of each team before they began. At the beginning, humble teams started off doing average or even slightly worse. But over time, they learned from their mistakes. We found that by the end, the, the humble teams, the stock value was higher than, than all the others. And their rate of, of stock growth, there was, they hit this inflection point where they just started to make the right decisions. Like almost every week, they were just making better decisions than the other teams. And it was translating into bottom line impact. And so the benefits of humility may not be impressive initially, but they unfold over time. They accumulate and kind of crescendo into not just soft outcomes, but really hard bottom line outcomes. So hopefully this has persuaded you to take humility more seriously, or even better, to try and be more humble. If that's your intention, where do you start? What are the practices of a humble person? Part of the purpose of interviewing those mortgage banking leaders in Seattle for my dissertation was to ask them to describe in, in kind of clinical behavioral detail, what does a humble leader do? What does it look like? And from those um, statements, as well as looking at the literature about humility, settling in on, on three core dimensions. And so humility entails individuals seeing themselves more accurately, new information more openly, and other people more appreciatively. And so there's a self-awareness component, a teachability component, and then an appreciation of others component of humility. To say those one more time, humble behavior means self-awareness, teachability, and appreciation of others. I really love how simple this formula is. What I especially love is this means humility is something that can be practiced and improved. I really like the way that Aristotle um, described virtues, that they're more like moral muscles that we can choose to develop to try and kind of habituate into our characters. Otherwise, they're, they're not really moral victories if we had no choice in, in whether or not we embrace them and practice them. So I, I personally believe that it is something that people can develop and practice and grow. I was interviewing a, a president of a hospital in Seattle, and 
I asked him a question that's similar to this, and he said, I have interacted with people who I would say are ones and twos on humility and those who are eights and nines on humility. And he said, I think that you could probably train and coax a one or a two to become a four or a five, but I don't think you could get them to be a nine or an eight. So I do think that the individuals can grow in humility. In fact, one mortgage banking leader said that early in his career, he worked with the most arrogant person imaginable. And he was claiming all of their ideas as his own, berating others all the time, not aware at all of his own foibles and mistakes. And then he had a couple huge reversals in life. One of them was professional. Another one was, I think, health. And the guy totally did a a 180 with regard to humility and completely changed. And he said that he instead became an extremely humble person. And it took him a while to trust it, but he said that he witnessed this transformation that occurred. It is a characteristic that seems malleable. And so we've tried to teach executives and other leaders about humility. We've run them through exercises. We've gotten good feedback, but it was short-term feedback about the effects of this. It seems to resonate deeply. People, when they understand what humility really is, feel like they need more of it usually, and they see that it is valuable. I believe that when someone takes opportunity to engage in introspection, to be internally self-aware, that can be very valuable. And that's the first dimension of humility is self-awareness but also getting feedback from outsiders. Just this practice of, of taking advantage when there's a feedback opportunity. I think that those things can really help an individual also to embrace the behaviors of humility, which then in turn can be kind of become more natural, less forced. And now for a word from our sponsor. How do you develop your people if they're working remotely? It probably feels harder than ever to give them an engaging and valuable learning experience. And building a team means learning together, which can be even harder these days. At Merit Leadership, we have just the thing. Our Leading with Ethics course is a live, online, or in-person experience that builds your team's ethical skills and leadership skills together. People overwhelmingly love it because it's engaging, it deepens relationships, and it develops practical skills that people use at work every day. To learn more, click on the link in the show notes or visit meritleadership.com. At this point, you might be asking a question that naturally appears when you talk about humility as a behavior rather than an attribute. Is this even real humility? I mean, if their thoughts and intentions don't actually change, are they really being humble or just putting on a show? In other words, can someone fake humility in the way that we've been talking about it here? Well, the first point to make is that they would probably need to fake it for a long time for the people around them to believe it. And they would have to be reasonably consistent in showing humble behavior while hiding their true nature. If they can do that, then maybe the answer is that it doesn't matter if they're truly humble in their heart. We have had some review teams and others push back with our measure of humility and say, well, 
couldn't an, a very arrogant narcissistic person see the social benefits of humility and just enact these behaviors inauthentically when they're not truly humble within. And I can see that that's possible, but the way that we measure humility is usually by the consensus of three to 10 uh, employees. And in many cases, the average time these employees have worked under a leader has been for over a year or, or two years. And so they're observing this leader up close every day for two years and seeing this consistency and humble behavior. And so I think that there's something to be said about authenticity of humility that's so consistent and, and enacted over time. Consistency is tough for all kinds of behavior, and sometimes being humble is hard. What gets in the way of us developing more humility? We are deeply motivated to believe that we are more skilled, more virtuous, you know, moral, any self-evaluative dimension, there's pretty good research that people tend to inflate those. So I think there may be just a natural internal tendency that gets in the way of self-awareness. That sounds like exactly the kind of baked-in behavior that is incredibly hard to change. I mean, is any one of us ever truly self-aware? I also think it's important to point out that arriving at perfect self-awareness is not really the point, nor is it likely possible but humble people, they embrace the journey of, of accurate self-awareness. And so some may find it a barrier just saying, I'll always have blind spots and I can't see what other people can see. Therefore, why, why embrace accurate self-awareness if I can never really get there? But I think the key point is humility gives you an openness and a desire to grow more accurate self-awareness over time. If you remember, there are three behaviors tied to humility, and we've mostly been talking about self-awareness. What about the next one, teachability? As far as barriers for teachability, that's a good question. When we lack the, the true kind of awareness of what we know, what we're good at, I think it also may negatively influence our willingness to be open to learning from others and to feedback. I just read recently a comment in this great book called Self-Renewal, written by a mm. guy named John W. Gardner. One of the things he talks about in there is, is that a problem we have is that so many people are, are resistant to learning because learning involves failure, and they're just mm. scared of failure. Do you think that's a barrier to teachability, is this fear of failure? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We do have stories about individuals who, as leaders, they're trying to get there employees to become more creative and innovative and they voice that that's a barrier that they have and by communicating their own failures and their own growing pains it helps in a way to liberate others to hopefully embrace the idea of failing fast and failing your way to, to making progress along certain goals summarizing again teachability is often disrupted by fear if we can create more friendly environments for ourselves and others, we cultivate more opportunities to act humbly. So now what about the third attribute, appreciating others? As far as the third dimension of humility, this idea of appreciating others, I think barriers there may stem from everyone growing up in kind of this comparative, competitive social context. Humble people see others as exemplars from whom they might learn rather than threats 
to their own ability to shine. In a way, humility enables someone to overcome that kind of comparative, competitive social lens, I'd say. And I think that takes some doing and it takes some salient experiences or a measure of enlightenment to be able to overcome feeling threatened when there's other people around you who are talented in unique ways. It makes total sense that we have a harder time appreciating others if we spend our time comparing ourselves to them. Social media seems designed then to damage our ability to do that. Platforms like Instagram, if we're not careful, leave us comparing our worst to someone else's best. In that setting, we're more likely to resent others than we are to appreciate them. Maybe one thing we can do is to stop treating admiration as a scarce resource. The truth is that we can give praise, show gratitude, or otherwise compliment people all the time. Admiration, in the end, is really only as scarce as we make it. I hope you've been finding this conversation as useful as I have. So here's another question. Are there specific leadership moments where expressing humility is a bad idea? Early in, in our research, we really tried to identify boundary conditions for the effectiveness of humility. And so in every interview that we did in kind of military organizations or nonprofits or business organizations, we'd ask them, in what situations is humility and leadership a bad idea? Basically, the scenarios that they communicated that were less effective for humility entailed situations of extremely high threat where people's lives were on the line and and great time pressure. The process of, of leading with humility seems to take time, it unfolds. And so in those situations of extremely high threat and time pressure, like a, a combat situation, for instance, those who are being led need order and direction rather than to feel validated or to open things up to get everybody's ideas or for the leader to communicate their fear. I remember one mortgage banking leader said, there are certain times when you do have to put on a strong front and that's what the employees need from you. And then you can go home and privately freak out was the the quote that she used. And so I think that also humility may not be most effective for leaders that have zero kind of equity with people yet, meaning a brand new leader that gets into an organization, there's some measure of kind of competence or credibility that needs to be established because humility doesn't fulfill most people's initial um, expectations for what makes a, a really good leader. I think they they want to see some measure of uh, competence first and, and strength, that kind of thing. Humility doesn't replace competence. It only enhances it. You need to be good at your job and be able to show that to other people. The paradox is that those who are brand new in their jobs, especially in their roles as leaders, that may be the time when humility is most important they they need to be teachable and and identifying mentors around them but it also may be the time where humility could be more risky if you have a ceo who is obviously accomplished very much them showing humility doesn't burn idiosyncrasy credits for those who don't expect that as much from a leader 
compared to the brand new leader installed in a department where they don't know him or her at all. So Brad also pointed to a study of people who are attractive or have high charisma, and humility works better for them. So if you're especially beautiful or handsome, showing humility works even better for you than the rest of us average people. Brad is also doing research on the boundary conditions of humility. And part of what his research shows is that there's special rules in a time of crisis. It's in those moments that you should maybe show less humility to get people to act quickly, but that usually only works if you used humility in the low pressure times to make sure that people trusted you. One thing we did find is military leaders who were able to lead with more humility which in a way they shared their leadership around the team. When crises did emerge, if that leader's kind of typical posture was to be more humble and kind of communal and bottom up in their leadership, when needed in combat situations, they were much more able to lead effectively when they had to assume a more top-down authoritative posture. And so it was easier to go from humility to kind of, again, a stern, top-down leadership approach compared to the leaders who were more top-down and authoritarian from the get-go. If, for instance, something went wrong or they they were in a situation where they needed to get uh, input from everyone, it uh, was very difficult. And those leaders struggled because those being led were not used to functioning that way. They were just used to being told what to do. And so there's kind of this asymmetry in being able to switch different leadership modes. In other words, it's easier to be tough if you've been humble than it is to be humble if you're always tough. But if humility doesn't fit your natural instinct or abilities, don't give up hope on developing it. Do you think humility comes naturally to some people more than others? I don't have data on on this. I, I personally know people who have always been more humble interpersonally in their interactions and in the way that uh, they respond to accolades and, and things like that. So whether it's upbringing, uh, there's some ideas from X-Line and Tagney that having more adaptive kind of Let's see. I'm actually trying to, to remember the the phrase attachment. Yeah, more attachment, uh, higher attachment growing up with your parents is is very important. That narcissism or arrogance may be the response of some developmental and relationally based deficits that occurred earlier in, in one's life. So even though I think humility can be developed and there's behaviors you can embrace and and kind of inculcate into your character, it does seem like there are some significant life events or things related to upbringing, one's kind of religious or moral foundation that makes someone more inclined to embrace and see value in humility. Yeah. So there are people who still, despite everything that you've identified, are going to approach humility cynically, probably because they don't exercise or demonstrate it all that much. But how do you persuade the humility cynics? So I love this marketing strategy of Nike that they employed in the kind of the 80s and 90s. They basically said, 
to the world that if our shoes are good enough for Michael Jordan, they're good enough for you. And so using that same strategy, colleagues and I have been examining humility more and more in the most extreme context that we can kind of have access to. And so I've been over to West Point a couple times, and actually there's interviews going on right now where we're interviewing special operations commandos and other combat leaders. And even though I, I just spoke about how in situations of extreme threat and time pressure, like combat would be times when humility is less effective, it's been surprising at just how much uh, these leaders who lead in some of the most intense, scary, dangerous contexts you can imagine, how much they see humility as being a defining feature of someone who's effective in those contexts and to be able to prepare your team to function effectively in those kinds of contexts. And so we've just been compiling and gathering story after story where these leaders who are actually the ones who successfully have been in combat, been deployed several times and invited back to West Point to train the next generation of West Point leaders. They, they seem to identify this, what I would call West Point disease. And that is you have this, these best of the best cadets who have succeeded at almost everything they've ever tried. It's so difficult to get into West Point. And they get to West Point and they're told they're given the, the most superior tactical training and leadership preparation. And it is ex- exceptional. And then they get to the field and there, there can be a measure of overconfidence that occurs. And it seems like the, those leading or, or teaching leadership classes there at West Point and these other two are at West Point and, and trying to help kind of prepare the next generation, that humility is a key piece of, of what they're trying to facilitate. And there's, there's obviously lots of other th- characteristics that good leaders need, but humility is the one where it takes they're especially kind of seem to be focusing on. And as a kind of evidence for the significance of, of humility, over the last, I think it was two months ago, the Army Core Leadership Doctrine changed its document to include humility as an important piece, meaning that every Army leader is going to be trained, or at least it's going to be emphasized that humility is a key part of effective leadership in the army. I hope that example, which I love, wins people over to being more humble. It really matters. And not just at work. Humility probably has its biggest impact in our personal relationships. Next question. I mean, we've been talking about humility in the context of organizations primarily, but what difference do you think humility makes in our personal and family relationships? Mm, that's that's a great question. It's it, as we did a lot of our interviews. It was interesting how many of these executives cited examples of the importance of humility and how it's affected their personal lives. Their leadership coach, who I got in contact with, his core purpose was to try and facilitate greater humility in corporate leadership, and so it was definitely professionally focused. But many of these leaders were sharing how applying concepts of humility in their homes that had made things better, uh, in some cases better than they've ever been. So I, I tried to look into this and kind of drill down and found 
there was this uh, relational psychologist, his last name is Means, and in 1978, he published a paper detailing what he called humility training and basically believed that, that humility enables people to overcome some of the most significant kind of roots of relational problems, kind of the self over self-focus and, and inability to empathize. And, and so I, I know that, even, that currently there are scholars I'm aware of who are developing humility trainings that, to take marital couples through or uh, to enhance family relationships. And part of the, the reason why it's so important for more effective personal relationships is because humility can be seen as a form of non-material social giving, where you're giving voice, giving validation, giving license to be imperfect or to be developing. And so when that occurs, then it creates a more relational safety, security, um, and ability for the relationship to uh, be more resilient, you know, when, when there's difficulty. So the commitment to accurate self-awareness and owning of mistakes, to teachability or openness to kind of learn what another person's needs are, right? And then a penchant to show and feel deep appreciation for the uniqueness of other people. You can just imagine how these three things could uh, be helpful in fostering healthy family and other personal relationships. As you can imagine, Brad has encountered incredible examples of humility. He's something like a humility connoisseur. I asked him to share a favorite story or two. I There's a few, yeah. One that I really love is when the, the Revolutionary War was won, and there was a report to King George, who was just defeated in war, that General George Washington, it was his intention to return all military power back to the people, back to Congress. And King George's response to that, I think, is really interesting when he heard that. He said, quote, if he, George Washington, does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And the reason I love that was it wasn't George Washington's military kind of st- leadership, his kind of strategical acumen that, that won this opinion from his opponent, in a way. But it was that George Washington was willing to do what very few others in his position were able to do. And that is to, again, return power back to the people rather than install himself as as a dictator. And so Cincinnatus is another one in Rome that also was able to to do that. Uh, But otherwise, you can look at Napoleon and Stalin and others. And once they were They won a war that they were a leader of. They installed themselves as a leader. And there's a great book by David J. Bob. It's entitled Humility, the Unlikely uh, History of America's Greatest Virtue. And he talks about how humility, the humility of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and, and others actually enabled this great nation to be born and to become great. And that without it, we would have kind of... Uh, defaulted to kind of past forms of government that just were not as sustainable as kind of democratic. So that's kind of a general, kind of larger historical example. 
A more current example, Paul O'Neill from Alcoa, I think is also a, a good example of humility. There's stories of him writing handwritten notes of appreciation to members of his organization. And many CEOs have done this, but it just shows individual and personal understanding of the value of people in the organization, taking time to, to honor them, um, just reflecting this third dimension of humility and appreciation of others. And so he also seemed to be one who was open to feedback, was very empowering of uh, others in the organization, not seeking a lot of positive attention for himself, just wanting everybody to grow and, and to leave a positive legacy that, that would extend far past his, his tenure there. So David Nelleman at JetBlue, even though now he's at Azul, I believe, he started the Rio de Janeiro-based airline company. But while at JetBlue during the holidays, he would be out in the baggage car- carrels, loading and unloading baggage or in the planes cleaning up in order to show and communicate to everyone that especially during the very busy holiday time, that no job was too menial and that the CEO, president and founder of the company was there doing some of that manual labor, just again, to, to show how much he valued everybody's contributions. So here's the last big question. And I like asking this, I asked Jeff this about calling, but I think it's really interesting to think of it from uh, the perspective of humility. How is the world different if everyone is more humble? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I think that we'd experience more legitimate and actual personal growth and development rather than a lot of appearances of try, trying to appear competent or successful. And I know there's many people that, that aren't necessarily doing that, but I, I think that we would progress intrapersonally and interpersonally if there was more humility. I think some of the major kind of stumbling blocks that make people unhappy have to do with a over an inaccurate view of themselves and and the weight of trying to maintain that inaccurate view. And so I think humility instead kind of fosters this underlying belief in personal malleability and, and the possibility of growth. And therefore, you'd be freed from kind of the tyranny of your current limitations, foibles, weaknesses are just, they're temporary rather than permanent. They're things that you can outgrow, you can, you can develop further. And from that perspective, your strengths are the things that really define who you are. Those are the things that are permanent. And all your weaknesses are merely temporary from this, this kind of this growth mindset that humility fosters. And I think that that, would, that's, that could be very liberating for people who are in more of a fixed mindset. And I think generally people would make better moral or ethical decisions Immanuel Kant said that the root of all vice is self-worship. And so the opposite of self-worship is self-transcendence. And humility is a virtue of self-transcendence. That's its philosophical core. And so I think that moral character and moral strength would be more important if, if there was more humility in the world compared to other me- metrics of success. So humility, despite all its benefits isn't just for getting work to go better 
or to make people like you more. Perhaps its greatest power is how it opens the door for us to become better people. None of us is perfect. But none of us can improve if we aren't first humble. I can't really express this idea as beautifully as Mother Teresa, so I'm just going to quote her here. This is what she said in her book, In the Heart of the World. Humility is the mother of all virtues, purity, charity, and obedience. It is in being humble that our love becomes real, devoted, and ardent. If you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know what you are. If you are blamed, you will not be discouraged. If they call you a saint, you will not put yourself on a pedestal. Humility really is the mother of all virtues. While Mother Teresa isn't the only person to make this observation, I love her expression of it. It's out of humility that we all have a way to grow in the attributes that make more out of us. I'm so grateful to my friend, Professor Brad Owens, for taking the time to talk with me. You can learn more about his research using some of the links that we provided in the show notes. And keep an eye on him, because if you ever get a chance to hear him speak, I guarantee it will be worth your time. If you've enjoyed this season of How to Help, please take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast app. We always are hoping to reach more listeners. Also, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when our second season launches. As for season two, and in the spirit of humility, I would love to hear your feedback on how to improve. What did you love? What would you change? You can find me on Twitter at Aaron Miller or send us feedback to podcast at how-to-help.com. As you await season two, consider subscribing to the weekly newsletter for How to Help. Each edition recommends high-impact organizations and shares ideas for how to have more meaning in your work. You can find that at our website. We are incredibly grateful to Merit Leadership for sponsoring season one of the podcast and to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. Our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in our show notes. Finally, as always, and especially here at the end of our first season, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been Season 1 of How to Help.